Hello, thank you for joining the European Council on Foreign Relations for a special podcast episode from our Women of Middle East Network for Peace Building. This network was launched back in 2022 uh, to bring together women with ties or from the Middle East region who are focused on peace building initiatives. My name is Ellie Jeremiah. I am Deputy Director of ECFR's MENA program, and I'm really delighted to be joined by members of this network who've been with us from uh, day one. We are all together huddled in a room in, in Brussels, with some of us just off the plane uh, from different uh, parts of the world. I'm glad to be joined by Roxanne Farman Farmanion from the University of Cambridge, Dania Tafar from the Gulf Institute Forum, Sanam Vakil from Chatham House, and Yasmin Farouk from the Carnegie Endowment and Baker Institute. So we are now two months after this historic uh, deal that was penned in Beijing between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And now that we've all had time to digest various parts of the news from different capitals, we wanted to bring um, some great experts from our Women P Network together uh, to consider uh, the, the future and some of the media projects that might lay ahead in the region. So Roxanne, let me come to you first uh, for some of the big picture expectations. Um, what do you think Iran and Saudi Arabia are hoping to achieve from this deal going forward, especially with the 2024 US elections around the corner? I think in many ways we see that China has added a breath of fresh air to the entire region. There is a sense of empowerment and opportunity, and we're seeing many of the regional states beginning to normalize relations, establish new uh, opportunities to bring different ones out of the cold. So we're seeing Syria being added back into the Arab uh, League. This is all something that comes from a sense that there are changes afoot. There, it is becoming much more multipolar. And the, um, the sense that China has both been able to add its heft to broker a deal between Saudi and Iran, but has done it in a way that's in, in a sense quite hands-off and focused very much on its own economic interests, uh, gives a feeling that there are opportunities for the states in the region themselves to actually take the baton and move it forward. And Yasmin, let me come to you as someone who's looked a lot at Saudi Arabia and the leadership um, in Riyadh. Um, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, a very um, young generational leader in this part of the world, um, is, is, you know, come to face to face with a very old leader in the, in the region, the Iranian supreme leader. And the two have exchanged many insulting words throughout the previous few years, uh, particularly over the Yemen conflict, but also Iran's broader ambitions in the region. What do you think has been the changing factor in Riyadh for coming to the table finally after years of Iran pushing this plan for regional de-escalation? So we have to admit that, you know, there has been a Saudi learning curve when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, that stems for a change in the decision making that took place right after the Khashoggi, you know, murder in 2018, bringing in more expertise. And since then, we've been seeing a stronger link between domestic national plans for Saudi Arabia that are, you know, portrayed in Vision 2030 and regional escalation and in general, a foreign policy that serves this plan. 
And de-escalation is, is, is approached this way, that we need it in order to become a logistical hub, in order to um, secure the mega projects on the Red Sea, in order to focus uh, on the domestic uh, diversification of the economy. So the de-escalation with Iran comes after a series of, I don't want to say U-turns, but let's say a reconsideration and, uh, of uh, the foreign policy in many files, you know, with Qatar, but also when it comes to uh, relations with other Arab states, with which Mohammed bin Salman had had tensions at the beginning of, of his reign. So in that sense, this is a trend that had started and that I expect to continue actually in, in Saudi foreign policy. Now the question really is, is there a strategic thinking on the long run or is it just, you know, uh, we can say um, short term settlements or agreements uh, that are very practical, very limited in time to get things calm no matter what the price is on the long run. Uh, this is how I see it for, for the time being. Thank you. And, and Yasmin, you mentioned about trends and strategic thinking in Riyadh. So let me shift uh, to Sanam for the view in Tehran. Um, you know, one of the questions that has been on a lot of people's mind is whether this area of de-escalation and normalization with Riyadh is something that there is consensus over in Tehran. We often talk about there being divergent factions over policies uh, with the West, especially with the United States. But do you see a consistent foreign policy commitment from different factions inside Iran to this? And maybe just to add in here the, the latest news that a, a very prominent figure that has been part of the national security and foreign policy of Iran, particularly on this um, detente with Saudi Arabia, Ali Shamkhani, has uh, just announced that he's going to leave his post um, and be replaced uh, by another former IRGC uh, personnel who we don't really know that much about yet. Um, does that signal that there is actually more friction in the system over this issue than we thought? Or is this more of a personal issue between Shamkhani and the rest of the leadership? Thanks, Ali. Um, well, I think from Iran's uh, perspective, there has been consensus about um, improving ties with the JCC. And this has been a sort of consistent um, policy objective of the Rouhani administration and now the Raisi administration. So the fact that it's taken place uh, after um, uh, almost eight years of tensions, you know, um, and it's happening under Raisi's watch, while reformists and pragmatists are formally out of power, um, you know, can say something uh, about maybe the effectiveness of Iranian foreign policy. But I think that there is, at the time being, consistence consistency and consensus about uh, breaking maximum pressure, breaking uh, Iran's sort of isolation in the region. And um, this deal comes at a really important time for the kingdom, for, for Tehran, sorry, uh, because um, it's looking to reduce threats. Uh, it has experienced months of protests that have uh, further damaged its reputation in the West. Um, closed off direct dialogue with regards to the nuclear program and inflamed Iran's diaspora. Uh, so arriving at this agreement came at a really important time for Iran. But um, I'm not sure it's quite connected to Shamkhani's departure. Uh, there were rumors that Shamkhani was going to be replaced going into last year. There were corruption allegations. Um, 
associated with his family members, and he's been in his position for quite a long time. Um, he's sort of outlasted some of his predecessors, so his time uh, was uh, surely running out. The question is, um, where will he be placed? Because he was seen to be so essential in bridging uh, and, and delivering reconciliation. Um, so I can't imagine that he's going to be formally marginalized. Um, and um, his successor, Ahmad Yan, is someone who has worked closely with uh, Shamkhani through the years. We're not quite sure exactly um, his views on, on many different issues, but um, this is a system that does like to circulate its elites, and that's quite uh, unique. Um, compared to other countries in the region. And I think secondly, um, for, for the Islamic Republic, delivering on reconciliation, at least for the time being, is very much in its interest. So I don't expect spanners mm -hmm. to be thrown into this file. Thanks so much. Uh, Daniel, let me come to you as someone who watches the GCC world very closely. Um, in recent days, the Arab League met for what? Look to me, at least, as a very surreal get together of people like, um, you know, Assad from Damascus and Zelensky coming from Kiev, uh, two perhaps very different characters uh, being invited uh, by the Arab League. And where did Iran fit into the thinking of the Arab League in this latest um, meeting? And do you see shifts um, coming from the broader Arab world uh, in conjunction with the shifts we're seeing within the GCC towards Iran? And in what terms do you mean, where did Iran fit into the Arab League? You mean bringing back Assad? I just mean in terms of um, the, the Arab League's openness for general de-escalation across the region oh. in areas where they had previously contested with Iran for influence and for hard power and soft power. Well, um, I think uh, taking it a step back a little, looking into the post-Arab Spring era, everyone has... Is, gotten to a point where they're cutting their losses and capitalizing on their gains. And um, uh, now that these the GCC states are looking for, uh, forward uh, to hitting 2030 and their economic visions, it's very important for them uh, to de-escalate uh, with Iran, especially after uh, the failure of the JCPOA I think from the perspective of, of Saudi Arabia, right now would be the most opportune moment to leverage uh, uh, negotiations to, 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 to de-escalate and have detente with Iran. Um, and so I think when you, when you ask about the Arab League, it, it goes along with, with, as my colleagues have outlined, the general movement towards de-escalation. Um, in the region, and um, Iran is a big part of that, considering um, Iran's roles across, across the region, um, uh, the conflict in Yemen, uh, Syria is actually considered to be a uh, part of that as well. Right now, I, what the GCC states uh, are looking at is focusing more domestically and um, not having to get involved in as many as com as many conflicts, and I think that's that's where Iran is a very important bottleneck issue for broader regional security. Thanks so much, Tanya. So, so you said everyone is looking to capitalize on opportunities to gain at the moment. 
Roxanne, let me come back to you. What do you think are some of the areas of opportunities going forward um, for, let's say, prospects for de-escalation and actual regional cooperation following this Iran-Saudi deal? Well, as I wrote in uh, a report that I've recently done on a uh, for the European Leadership Network, which uh, captured many of these ideas we brought together in a committee uh, meeting, the... Um, the opportunities are several because I very much agree with Danya. The uh, there's a there's a feeling that there's a great deal of uh, fatigue about conflict, which has marked the last couple of decades, and it has uh, also not really helped to uh, link other issues together. So I see compartmentalization taking place and a lack of zero-sum thinking. And um, those are all very positive in terms of moving forward. So I think what there, there truly might be, and I think the, the meeting of the um, Arab League indeed was surreal, uh, but quite interesting in that it was an example of the Arab states showing that they truly want to take advantage of this new, the opportunities of this new multi-poly world. And there was therefore um, a, an expression of different kinds of policies mm -hmm. that were part of that gathering. And Iran not being there, of course, but nonetheless was a an example of a pro-Russian uh, state that is supporting uh, the war against Ukraine. Then there was Zelensky who was, you know, representing the opposite side. And I think that's very much where the Gulf wants to go. And so one of the important things they're coming to realize is that security for Iran is very important. And I find that this is one of the diverging factors between what's happening with West's policy towards Iran and the Gulf generally versus what's happening to the group in that region. They uh, realize their own security for each one of these states depends to some degree on ensuring that Iran's security is maintained. And I think we're seeing on the part of uh, the US and Europe, uh, particularly after the protests and a sense of human rights abuse, that they are less interested in, in uh, guaranteeing Iran's security. And we certainly see that being the tension side of this equation, mm -hmm. which is where Israel's rising uh, shadow war with Iran is now in full flower. Thanks, um, Roxanne. You mentioned the issue of the shadow war between um, Israel and Iran. Yasmin, let me come to you for your thoughts on how Saudi Arabia is viewing the risks in the region, uh, particularly from, uh, you know, a very emboldened prime minister in, in Israel, Netanyahu, both on, you know, not just the domestic issues and, and Palestinian issues, but also um, seemingly sometimes a cop blush from the United States uh, to take matters into its own hands when it comes to Iran's nuclear program. How are the GCC states that neighbor Iran and that would be on the front lines, let's say, of this heated conflict, if we go in that direction, feeling about this? And what does this detente with Iran mean uh, for their risk calculations vis-a-vis -vis the Iran-Israel dynamic? 
I think, honestly, I don't, I don't know if they include us uh, around this table, but in, in a lot of the papers and the analysis that I read about, you know, the Gulf relations with Israel, there is an underestimation of how much they understand that there's a huge risk linked to the relationship with Israel. We tend to always, you know, read those um, papers and articles saying, oh, the Gulf is getting closer with Israel to confront Iran or to get some kind of security against Iran or get uh, within CENTCOM, for example, and some kind of defense arrangement or even defense structure against Iran. Um, and that's not 100% accurate because I think all of them, including the UAE, understands the risk of a closer defense and security relationship with Israel when it comes to Iran and that um, in whatever confrontation between Iran and Israel, they will not necessarily be players, uh, or at least, let's say, main players, but they will be victims, whatever position they take. And I think part of that uh, deal that Saudi Arabia made with Iran was actually to secure itself against any kind of escalation with Israel, but also with the United States, saying, you know, they were already not on board with any kind of military action against Iran, but now they are saying it directly to the Iranians. We're not going to be any part of that uh, kind of confrontation. Um, now, if I may add just one thing about, you know, the surreal Arab summit, as you call it. <laughs> now, you know, Arab countries have never been good in collective action, right? In taking a collective stance. And, um, but they have some kind of coordination. And when it came to Iran, Saudi Arabia in particular has always been key to the relationship between Iran and the rest of the Arab country, if you, uh, countries. If you take a country like Egypt, for example, that has in the past had its own major and still problem with Iran since the revolution of 1979. One of the main, um, let's call it obstacles to uh, the restoration of the relation has been, you know, the Saudi position and the coordination between Riyadh and Cairo on that matter. But now that after the statement, the trilateral statement made in Beijing, uh, the talks between Iran and Egypt came to the surface mm -hmm. and were made public. You have even contacts between Bahrain low Bahraini low-level officials and Iranians. So I think um, there is there is a Saudi leadership there. It is going somewhere, uh, and it, it's it's going to be expanded. So Iran was not at the summit, but certainly we're seeing these developments. Now it doesn't mean that again, as the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Saudi Arabia said, it doesn't mean that the differences or even the latent conflicts or even competition with Iran in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Lebanon, even in Palestine, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it will not stop. But there is some kind of, you know, agreement on the rules of the game from now on that we might see, you know, becoming more concrete in the future. Thanks so much. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're going to be discussing a lot going forward is um, whether as regional players take more ownership for the state of affairs in the region, uh, there could actually be some sort of a arrangement, let's say, not even a deal, an arrangement reached over Iran's nuclear program. So, Sanam, let me come to you. Do you think people are thinking about Iran's nuclear program in the region in any serious way, bar Israel, I mean? And is this an area where the region would be open to having a quid pro quo with Iran over? Is Iran interested in this? What are your thoughts on that? 
It's an interesting question. Um, I'm not confident that the thinking is very advanced. I think that um, many regional states see themselves perhaps as a conduit, interlocutor, or um, could be part of a broader arrangement. But I think that the level of coordination to uh, curate um, what might be the next layer or level of discussions is um, far from formed. Uh, you do hear the sort of change of tone coming from Riyadh, uh, where, uh, and this change of tone um, was directed to mentioning the nuclear program as, as an issue for Riyadh. It wasn't just Iran's um, role in the region or its ballistic missile and drone program. You, be, you know, over the past year, there was a sort of hint that the nuclear program was also a security risk. Um, so, you know, there could be some sort of opening where the Gulf states take a more proactive approach. There would have to be alignment, though, which is a perpetual challenge mm -hmm. in the GCC. And um, each GCC state uh, plays a particular role and has a particular balancing act. The Omanis have one strategy. The Qataris have been sort of the interlocutor of choice for the Biden administration. And it's unclear if Riyadh and Abu Dhabi want to play a role or if they want to just transactionally and bilaterally manage uh, their, their dynamics with Iran um, in this sort of wait and see kind of moment that we're in. Thanks. So, you know, one of the things um, that has become a major source of tension between uh, Europe, United States and Iran since September has not just been the nuclear issue, but it has also been domestic issues inside Iran. And it's very interesting and again, very surreal um, to watch particularly the relationship between Europe and Iran um, go really south over the past six months while the relationship between the GCC states and Iran uh, is improving. Daniel, let me come to you. I mean, we've heard a lot of analysis from the West about how they view dynamics in Iran, the stability of the leadership there. What is your sense of how both ordinary people, but also the leadership across the GCC view coming out of Iran? Do they see the, the, the leadership, the system is strong enough uh, to, to muddle through uh, the next few months? Uh, I mean, that's my assumption, given that they've struck this deal with Iran. Or do they think there is a real fragility and vulnerability within the system in Iran? Well, I think um, across the GCC, I think that they, they believe that Iran is still a, a very strong state. Um, uh, regardless of uh, domestic instabilities that it's it's facing, and um, I think if they didn't view that, they wouldn't totally have uh, went forward with uh, detente. Especially now, when you again, like uh, Sanam spoke, each GCC state mm -hmm. has a different relationship with Iran, um, and so in that regard, uh, I'll talk about maybe Saudi and UAE. I can't talk about all six of them in the same way. Um, if Saudi and UAE sensed there's a, there's a weakness in Iran and therefore um, uh, the regime uh, could, could be having some sort of instability, I don't think they would have confidently moved forward in engaging Iran because I think they would have taken that as an opportunity to be more of an aggressor with Iran. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Thank you so much. Let me um, do what we call the bonus rounds at ECFR podcasts, which is to ask you for your uh, 
best reads or best watches that uh, touch on uh, the Middle East region. I'll go first, first to give you time to think, uh, perhaps of the name. But um, on my end, I'll recommend a movie which is on Netflix called The Swimmers, uh, which for me was a very moving uh, depiction of the story of two sisters from Syria um, who come to Europe uh, through many, many difficulties and challenges. I won't give any spoilers. And I'll self-promote uh, <laughs> by by plugging a piece that I wrote for The National uh, in late April called uh, Iran-Saudi Reconciliation Can Help uh, the Middle East climate, uh, climate Fight. And this was actually inspired by um, several sessions of our women's um, group discussions in recent months. Um, so I'm very thankful to the thoughts of all of the, of, of the people in the network. Roxanne, let me come to you to plug in something that you've read with interest or watched with interest. I think one of the things I was most struck with um, is that there's been a playwright, an Iranian playwright in the United States that has written uh, about what life was like as a, as a playwright and, and what that actually means in terms of freedom of expression. And it's an element I've always been very interested in is the use of language and the symbols that we use. And uh, she's gotten a great deal of, of uh, recognition for that in a country that I think has in many ways uh, grown intolerant of, of Iranians and uh, Iran. So it was heartening for on both sides to see the United States um, honor this woman and the play. And likewise, uh, I think, give her an opportunity to be recognized, uh, not just by her own uh, population in Iran, but uh, a larger a larger audience. And I, um, and I, I'm currently working on a, a rather tricky article um, that has to do with looking at the diaspora in Iran, uh, the Iranian diaspora after the protests. And I think there's much to be learned with how diasporas actually in general, I've been looking at how some of the Russian diaspora has been handling the, uh, the effect of the war and uh, conscription, for example, on their population fleeing and their communities abroad. And I think it's a very interesting dynamic and we're seeing this as a whole new area of academic inquiry and I think analysis as to how much a diaspora affects policy making by the countries they're living in and how that may negatively affect uh, next steps for those who are actually facing uh, challenges inside the country to change uh, aspects of government. So. Look forward That's to that to read. Yes, good luck on that piece. Uh, Yasmin, let me come to you. So uh, in the spirit of this uh, network, I'd like to highlight, you know, the work by uh, colleagues here. I, I might be late to the party, but, you know, I've been reading uh, recently the work done by uh, Sanam and Dalia on, you know, different visions of um, for security in, in the Gulf. And um, uh, I mean... It is it is done. You know, it's um it's very hard to add something to that debate, and I think uh, you added something to the debate. But it also, you know, uh, uh, reading it makes me constantly ask the question: Where is the region's own homegrown vision for God's mm -hmm. sake? So I encourage you to read it because they have many co-authors who know what they're talking about. And also, I'm very late to the party, but I read uh, Dania's report on women, peace, and security in the Gulf. And, uh, you know, at a time when you have all these um, informal, unofficial, but also official dialogues on regional security on the Gulf, you can't help but notice, you know, the very uh, few women who are involved. And I think that 
this is uh, something worth uh, reading, uh, updating, and you know, working on. Thanks, Tanya. I think you wanted to plug in the same piece, but I don't know if you want to expand on it at all. Sorry, 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 thank you. I have. Well, uh, uh, I, I I am excited about about that report. Um, I you know generally I work on hard security issues and geopolitics, mm. and so delving into um, gender issues was actually harder for me to navigate than some of the security mm-hmm. issues. But um, it, it, certainly it's uh, the report um, talks about, and it, it is a general report, and it, it, by nature it was designed that way um, uh, because it was uh, 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 in partnership with the U.S. mission uh, to NATO. Um, so we talked about the six GCC states, Iran, Iraq, and Yemen, um, from the perspective of conflict, from state-led, the, uh, the perspective of state-led feminism, gender-based violence, and um, education and integration of women, peace and security, and national visions. Um, so there was, there was a lot of territory to cover, um, and I look forward to others reading it as well and giving me their perspectives. Um, also, I have uh, my, my book coming out, um, with Oxford University Press and Hearst, which is Creative Insecurity, Youth Potential, um, and Institutional Inertia in the GCC States. So that's another kind of critical security view on um, security issues uh, in the Gulf. And usually in my personal research, I like to do these kind of works, but you know, in Washington, they always push you into talking about oil and uh, weapons and everything else. <laughs> but, um, and I look forward to engaging um, and talking more about my book and the future. A third book I'm, in, I'm reading now is Grand Delusion um, by Simon about uh, uh, U.S. policy in the Middle East. Um, and he gives some interesting uh, perspectives. It's quite, it's quite a long book, so I'm not not that far along into it, but I think it's it's a good read uh, to learn about U.S. Uh, Gulf policies. Not that I necessarily agree with everything he says, but good read. Thank you, and look forward to reading your book. Congratulations. Sana, I'm over to you for some final thoughts. Uh, thank you. First, first of all, thanks, Yasmin, for plugging that work. We're writing the final paper <laughs> and trying to figure out what that architecture is going to look like. So maybe we can <laughs> pick your brain for some ideas. Um, I was going to plug Steve Simon's book as well, Grand Delusion. I've read it, and I think it's very good, and it's a really good review of um, the last number of decades of U.S. policy in the region. And of course, it's coming at a time of deep reflection and perhaps um, intellectual retrenchment um, from U.S. Uh, policymakers with regards to the Middle East. So I think that pessimism is really uh, carrying through as a theme. I really enjoyed it. Um, on a cultural note, because I do try to um, engage in a bit of culture, I've enjoyed um Holy Spider, which is a fantastic oh, yes. <laughs> uh, Iranian movie um, that uh, is re- really worthwhile watching, a bit violent, but it's about a serial killer in Mashhad in the 1990s, and um, it's a fantastic movie. And another uh, Iranian movie called Leila's Brothers, um, which is also excellent in the story of a family and patriarchy and and the like. So uh, there's a lot uh, to celebrate. I've also, lastly, um, been enjoying a series that I have to find for you about um, 
art in Arabia um, and uh, the sort of uh, series that looks at sort of the evolution of, of art in the Gulf and, and I think that's quite interesting as well. Fantastic. Thank you for that great uh, diverse range of uh, items to add to our reading and watching lists. Uh, let me thank everyone who joined us for this special podcast of Women of Middle East Network for Peace Building. We hope to build on this uh, series of podcasts. So do tune in and listen. And we hope to be with you very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.